The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. I'm happy to be here with uh, you in this way. And a few weeks ago, I never could have guessed that uh, speaking in an empty room to a camera like this was possible for me or possible as a way of communication. And, and I'm surprised that, uh, that uh, these chats and different ways that I actually feel quite connected to not only many of you, but also to the a sense of a wide network of community and, and uh, people interested in the same thing and a lot of goodness that exists around the world. So I want to thank you for the opportunity to share these instructions. Uh, this is the last class for the Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation. At the end of this session, I'll talk a little bit about uh, what could be next, uh, other things I might offer coming up that are related. And, um, and I want to... Um, and. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I think that a few things I'd like to say as an introduction and, and for today, which is a small review of what we've done so far. And um, first I want to repeat what I've said a few times, this principle that if it's not simple, it's not mindfulness. And uh, so if you find yourself uh, tr- trying to figure out too hard, there's a technique, and do I do this now or that now, or what's, you know... What do I have to kind of investigate now to figure out what to be mindful of? You're probably going, it might be useful, but it might not be necessary for the purposes of mindfulness. That, um, that the, um, uh, the idea of the simplicity of mindfulness is to learn to be aware of what is obvious. And uh, you don't have to have a label for it. You don't have to know exactly what it is. But the capacity to be in the present moment with present moment experience with whatever is obvious. Now, in different circumstances of life, we might have to investigate or look more carefully and do something, you know, figure out what's going on. But for the purpose, especially of mindfulness meditation, um, a lot of what we're doing is um, settling or opening or freeing our capacity to be aware. So if I hold something, so I hold this striker of the bell that we have, and um, I could hold it really tight. This striker could be very important. It can be a, a symbol of something, symbol of my status as a Buddhist teacher, and so I have to keep this close by so everyone knows that who I am, or who I, you know, whatever, something silly. And so I hold on really tight to it, and, um, and because it's so important, I don't notice that I'm holding it tight. I don't notice after a while even that it's hurting to hold it tight. I don't notice that it's, um, you know, my, my fingers and hands are going numb from holding it so tight because I'm so focused on the, on the striker, on the meaning of the striker, what it's going to do for me, and all these kinds of things. If I now switch my attention from the striker and all the importance of the striker 
to what it's like for my hand to be gripping it, then I might notice that I'm gripping it more than I need to. That uh, sometimes I need to hold the striker, but I don't need to grip it so tight. In fact, I could loosen the grip. I could relax it. In fact, it's possible to open up the palm in such a relaxed way without losing it if I need to hold it. It's possible to open the hand and hold it like this. And so I still have it, and it's ready to be used, but how I'm holding it is very different. So in the same way, awareness, how we pay attention, how we're mindful, is uh, as important as what we're mindful of. It's kind of like there's two sides of the meditation practice. There's what we're aware of, and there's how we're aware. And, um, and these two go together, and they support each other. They hold each other up, in a sense. And sometimes we pay more attention to one. Sometimes we pay more attention to the other. And so what uh, this means is that this idea of simple, mindfulness is simple, is that how we're being mindful is also something we pay attention to. That we pay attention to, are we straining? Are we pushing into something? Are we, are we kind of gritting our teeth and really trying to be mindful to, as a, you know, a duty or as a good student or something? Or are we uh, too lackadaisical? You know, if I hold the striker and I'm not careful how I hold it, but I'm still relaxed about it, and I relax the holding, the striker drops out of my hand. So in the same way, if we hold our mindfulness too loosely and without much dedication and care, we lose it. The mind wanders off. So there is a way of being careful of how we're mindful, but the care is to hold it in a way that we stay present and we stay with the experience and can hold the experience uh, well so it's seen and known, but we neither lose it, we, the mind doesn't slip off the breath, the breath, for example, into daydreams. Uh, we're, we're there, but we also don't grab things. We're not pushing it away. So this idea of uh, noticing how we are aware, it can be a hard thing to do, uh, especially for someone who's beginning to meditation, but it's the, it's the, other, it's the second side of meditation, What's the, how the mind is relating to experience. So there, to say, to say all this in a little different way, there's always two things going on. And this is kind of just it's very simplistic, but uh, there's two, uh, it's useful to think of there's always just two things going on in the present moment. There is what's happening, which of course can be many, you know, infinite number of things. There's what's happening, and there's how we're relating to what's happening. There's what's happening, and then there's how we relate to it, or how we push it away, or how we grab it, or how we try to avoid it, or run away, or all these things that we do to it, or we stand watching it and we're judging it, and you know this is a bad striker and it's dirty, and you know a real Dharma teacher has you know I don't know what mahogany strikers, and you know poor Gill because he doesn't have the right striker, and. And all these thoughts and commentary and ideas and judgments and reactions and activity, all those things are distinct from the striker. The striker is a striker, and my relationship to it is different. 
So earlier when I talked about mindfulness of emotions, I, the raft simile, the last, the T of raft is teasing apart. And so it's to tease apart how I'm relating to something from the thing itself. And this, uh, to do this uh, well, doesn't require a lot of sophistication or a lot of knowledge or even a lot of intelligence. It requires being quiet enough to be able to distinguish between an experience and the relationship we have to it. The experience and how we hold it or push it away or you know what we're doing. And as the mind gets simpler and simpler, quieter and quieter, um, uh, we relax and the thinking mind relaxes. Uh, it's a natural thing to begin seeing these as being two distinct things. The experience and how we know it. Experience and how we relate to it. And how we relate to it is, you know, as we start feeling and recognizing how it is, it's important there also to stay simple and to just see it. Don't add second arrows. Don't then now, um, you know, be upset at the fact that you're upset. Don't be afraid because you're afraid. Don't be uh, judge yourself because you're judging yourself. And so the the kind of the one of the little mantras that can be represent mindfulness meditation would be something like, "Oh, so that's what's happening. Oh, that's what's happening." Or, "Oh, so it's like this now. It's like this. Oh, it's like this now." So, I'm, I'm if I'm clinging to my striker. Oh, it's like this now. There's clinging. Not to be in a rush to relax, uh, but to really just simple observation. Oh, look at that. This is a human being clinging to a striker. That's interesting. Let me be aware of that for a little bit. Let me just know it. And, and so you can hear perhaps that the movement, oh, let me just know it. Let me just be aware of it. Let me be curious about it. Is a very different relationship to it than oh, I've got to get rid of it, this is wrong, I hope no one notices that I'm clinging to it, all this extra stuff. So as mindfulness deepens, uh, we begin to see more clearly, and making this distinction can be very helpful. So with that, let's do a little meditation. Do, do a meditation session. So if you could please take a meditative posture, whatever is appropriate for you, and generally, if it's possible, it's good to sit up a little bit straighter than you normally would. And then to softly, kindly close your eyes. And perhaps as we begin this meditation with the eyes closed, to reflect that mindfulness meditation, session of meditation, is meant to be a time of kindness or positive self-regard, of doing something which is a good thing for oneself because we care and we value what we are and how we are. And, and that we don't what we're trying to not live with so much stress and upset and distractibility. 
and with a little bit of that positive self-regard, to begin by now to take some long, slow, deep breaths, perhaps in a gentle way, not more deeper than is appropriate for you, but as a way of connecting to yourself, to feel more of your body. Maybe these are the deepest breaths you've taken today. And so you really feel more of the body's process of breathing, the expansion of the rib cage, the lifting of the shoulders. You're aware more fully of the whole process of breathing out, the letting go, the smooth, maybe ending of it, or the fading of exhale. And then letting your breathing return to normal. And you might search through your body to see if there's any obvious places in your body where the muscles are held tight and contracted. And maybe don't relax right away as soon as you can, but take a few moments just to feel how that is. Sometimes the muscles will will relax themselves when they're seen and recognized of being tight. And that's kind of a nice process to let the body take care of itself rather than us always in charge. But then you could also then, if if it's easy enough to relax, let go, soften the body, the belly especially, maybe around the eyes, the face, And then maybe your awareness can be global in some way. And for a few moments, be globally aware of your body in whatever way is easy for you to do that. And then within this global body, as part of it, maybe as this, as the functional center of it, become aware of your body breathing. Allow the body's breathing to come into your awareness. And as you become aware, as you tune into your breathing, have a clear acknowledgement or intention, recognition, that this breathing, experience of breathing, will be the home, will be the center of where you keep your attention, rest your attention. And not as an avoidance of other things, 
but by sitting at the center of all things, rooted and grounded here in the body. Perhaps as you're exhaling, to relax your thinking muscle, any tension or pressure to think, any physical agitation or activation associated with thinking. As you exhale, let it become softer. Let the mind become broader, quieter. And perhaps as you exhale, letting go of your thinking, not by rejecting it, but allowing it to float away, to fall away. And then let go into the experience of breathing.
And if there's something occurring for you right now that makes it difficult to be with your breathing, let go of the breathing and bring your attention, mindful awareness to this other thing in the body and emotions and thoughts and thinking in the sounds around you. And recognize what that is. And there's something about the power of recognition, sometimes supported by a mental note, recognizing what it is, that can create a little bit of freedom, a little bit of peace in relationship to what is recognized. Sometimes the mental note needs to be done gently a few times so that the mind eventually gets the sense of it. Oh, this is being recognized. And the recognition is not the same thing as what is recognized. It's like we step away and look back. Oh, that's what's happening. And then whether you're with your breathing or you're recognizing what takes you away from your breathing, notice how you're recognizing, notice how you're aware, what attitudes come along with being aware. Is the awareness very simple, simple recognition? Or does it come along with more complicated attitudes of being for or against, liking or not liking, having all kinds of evaluations, projections, ideas about what's happening? Is the awareness tight and forceful? Might it be too loose, too relaxed, so that you just slip off too easily from what you're bringing attention to? How to have the hand of awareness open so that whatever you're attending to is resting in the palm of awareness, not falling off, dropping away, and not being gripped.
the simplicity of meditation where very little needs to be done and accomplished or thought about. A moment of mindfulness is a, can be a moment where we allow each thing that occurs to be itself. We're simply aware of what is and have the generosity to allow it to be just as it is. What is happening can be what is happening and then we know it with a clear, relaxed mind. And if the mind is not clear and relaxed, then it's useful to know, to recognize that mind, how that mind is. That can be the subject of mindfulness. And if you're off noticing other things besides the breathing, you might now come back for the last few minutes with and be with your breathing, being a companion to your body breathing.
And then to end this sitting, take a few deeper breaths again. Feel more connected to your body perhaps. Perhaps a little waking up of a certain kind with the deeper breaths. And then breathe normally again. Before you open your eyes, just recognize. Mindfulness is always about recognizing, being aware of how you are now compared to how you were before. So, so there's many perspectives to talk about mindfulness meditation, and one of them is to talk about uh, that what we're tuning into, aligning ourselves with, is our direct experience. So often a term that's used in our circles of meditation, direct experience. And what direct experience is pointing to is being aware with very little mental chatter, concepts, judgments, stories, uh, some of the labels, some of the concepts we put on top of things uh, are extra. So before I had this analogy with the striker, the striker of the bell, And it's possible to experience this object without putting on top of it the idea of a striker. Um, In fact, I might use it as a doorstop, and then it becomes a doorstop, or just a piece of wood. It just, uh, to direct experience is just feeling the shape, seeing the color, um, the texture of it. Um, And I can have all those experiences of texture, color, shape, without the concept of a striker. It's innocent enough to call this a bell striker, but it's also possible to experience it much more simply and directly. So in meditation, we're moving in the direction of that simplicity of just direct experience. And it requires the mind to be a little bit quieter than usual. It's not racing and rushing from one story idea to another, but quiet enough to start seeing uh, what's happening moment by moment. Now, part of the value of this direct experience, value of getting quiet enough or still enough to be able to see the difference between what's happening and our relationship to what's happening, is that uh, wisdom can arise. Wisdom in Buddhism, the wisdom that uh, Buddhism is clearly pointing towards, is not not book knowledge or knowledge about things that we can carry with us, remember, and apply. It's more like a discernment that we discover and see, or insight that we see, moment to moment, that's f- always fresh. And this freshness, that and deep wisdom, very important wisdom that can arise as mindfulness deepens, as we start being with ex- direct experience more directly. So I want to give you a little taste of how wisdom 
uh, gets aw- uh, awoken or begins to occur. There's many forms of wisdom and discernment, insight that's part of this practice as it deepens and continues. But here's one that maybe you'll find interesting and useful. So um, I'm going to hold up a flower. So here we have a flower. It's a rose from the single rose bush that's outside of Insight Meditation Center here in Redwood City. And uh, I imagine you can see it. In fact, let me look at myself. Yes, yeah, so so here you go. And um, holding up the flower. And um, now, there's a famous story in Buddhism where uh, the Buddha holds, holds up a flower. He doesn't say anything. All he does is smiles. And there's one person in the audience who somehow understands something very deeply, is enlightened by that, that um, and the Buddha then acknowledges his enlightenment. So maybe that, mo- that person was able to see just a direct experience, and somehow the direct experience of flower, the simplicity of flower, somehow released something in his mind, maybe. But here we have a flower, just a flower. Sometimes in Buddhism we call it the suchness of something, Uh, without any concepts, ideas, just the experience of the flower in and of itself. So that's nice. But now look what I could do. Um, I could, uh, so here's a flower, and, and just it is what it is. But then I'll get a different flower, and now, uh, let's see, I'm going to make sure that you, I'm, you're seeing what I intend you to see, so I'm going to look on the screen here. So, um, so now I hold up something else, an other flower. Now, now I can say something that I couldn't say before. I can say that this is the small flower, and this is the big flower. So you see that, right? So now I can, you know, this wasn't a. Wasn't a small or big flower before. It was just the flower, the suchness of the flower, and now it's still a suchness of flower. But the mind can say that there's a smaller flower and the bigger flower. But now watch this uh, trick of the hands, this magic that I'm going to do. So remember, this was the small flower, the rose, and this is the big flower. So now. I hold up this flower. And now, what was the big flower before has become, what the small flower before has become the big flower. So you see that? You even saw how the trick was done. And right before your eyes, this went from being the small flower to being the big flower. So what this points to is that we live in concepts. Sometimes we live in co- concepts of comparisons. And that's a function of the mind. They have, they're accurate in and of themselves in a certain way. But a lot of human suffering arises in comparative thinking. So, you know, for example, people have comparisons about their physiology in some ways. That uh, too tall, too short, hairline is too high, too low hair is too long, too short, too much hair, too little hair. 
a hands, this, that, you know, all kinds of things about their body. And they're all having to do in the comparison with other people's body or the idea of an ideal body. These are all mental ideas and concepts, some of them inherited or taken in from society and social ideas of what's a body. And um, what we're doing in, if we can see that we're doing that, and put that aside, all these extra attitudes and concepts, and just experience the suchness of our body, just experience the body in and of itself without the comparisons. Unless there's physical pain or something like that, uh, often our body by itself has no problems. It, you know, if um, you know the the forehead is completely content to be have a high forehead or you know receding hairline or not receding hairline or the hair is completely you know has no agitation around how much, how little, how long, how short, whatever it might be, and the generosity of allowing ourselves to be who we are, the generosity of relaxing and just letting the simplicity of the direct experience to be itself. We do that, can do that for ourselves and we can do that for others as well. Allow our friends just to be their friends, um, to learn how to separate out the judgments, the ideas, the, the attitudes we have as being distinct from what the direct experience is. To make that distinction allows the wisdom to choose what we do and choose what is wise about the attitude, what is extra, what is maybe harmful, what we can put down and what we keep up. And to allow something just to exist in itself. If you remember, we did this exercise on Mindfulness of the Body Day of just feeling the hand by itself. And in and of itself, the hand has you know, it's just a hand. Some of us will look at our hand and maybe at some points in our life feel like our hand is not quite right. Its fingers are too small, too long, fingernails are this way, that way, too much wrinkles, too many warts, too many something. But from the inside out, the hand doesn't have those judgments and ideas. It's a more complicated mind that makes those associations and ideas and thoughts. And so to quiet that down, and be able to see it clearly what we're doing, the relationship versus what's happening, and to begin to prioritize the direct experience. As we begin to prioritize the direct experience, we do a number of things. We're often benefiting ourselves by just allowing ourselves to be who we are in a simple way. It begins uh, dissolving the layers of armor, the layers of reactivity which many of us live in, and dissolve it, settle it, take them off, So we can just be simpler and simpler just ourselves and more at ease with who we are, calmer with who we are. So calm and so at ease that in Buddhism at least, at some point we realize uh, how little we need to put on top of ourselves um, all these uh, representations of who we are, all these ideas of being a good person, bad person, who we should be, shouldn't be, uh, how we want to be seen in the eyes of other people, how we want to prove ourselves or apologize for who we are. We can just kind of be there and just, and we don't have to even have a sense of, um, you know, of, at some point even what dissolves is even a sense of self dissolves in the flow, in the richness of just direct experience. 
But you don't lose yourself, of course, when there's no sense of self. But it's actually, you know, if you look at a sunset, uh, there's no attribute, attribution of self to the sunset. That's me up there in the sunset. Um, just the beautiful beauty, beauty of the sunset. So the same way, when some of these concepts of self dissolve, the beauty of who we are can stand there just as well as when, um, you know, even better sometimes than without all this extra stuff we put on top. So that was an example, I hoped, that conveyed some of the wisdom that's possible through this practice. And um, and uh, I wanted to... Um, um, and so to... Um, and that wisdom comes a lot from the mindfulness getting stronger. And part of the strength of mindfulness has to do with the strength of our concentration. Mindfulness and concentration are partners, and they come together and support each other. And, uh, and there's a number of ways of developing mindfulness further. And so that it has more momentum, it has more clarity, it has more, f- uh, the groove of mindfulness is developed, becomes second nature. And uh, one way is just simply doing it and doing it daily life, like I said yesterday, doing it, you know, meditating every day is very, very powerful. Um, I did, I've been doing meditation every day, mostly for the last 45 years, and I've been around a lot of people. And if you can meditate at least six days a week, even just for 20 minutes, or maybe 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, um, I did, when I first started my medita- regular meditation practice, I did it twice a day for 40 minutes, but never on Sunday. I, I had uh, learned meditation uh, uh, that I was doing at a Zen center, and I, don't, I never got a reason why, but on Sundays they did not meditate. So I thought that's the way to do it. And that was nice for me. Other people find it's good to meditate every day, seven days a week. But to have some momentum... I know one person uh, who likes meditating five days a week, um, but it doesn't have to be individual days. If the person misses a few days, then the person makes it up. So that by the end of the week, there's been five meditation sessions, but uh, it's not necessarily on different days. So there's all kinds of ways and tricks to get oneself to meditate regularly. And um, for those of you who enjoy these these instructions that I'm giving and my teachings, um, we now have this, maybe you know already, but we have an online morning, on California, morning meditation, seven o'clock in California time, uh, Monday through Friday, and you're welcome to join me uh, for that and and have some continuity and have a little bit of support of others to keep doing it. Um, But there's also developing concentration. And our concentration develops two different ways. It does develop by regular meditation practice. So, you know, daily meditation. Uh, it also develops by occasionally going on a meditation retreat. Meaning, so giving yourself more time to meditate. I mean, it could be a, a, a three-hour retreat that you give yourself on a, on a day that you're free. And uh, where you sit and just kind of maybe you do sitting meditation for a while, then walking meditation for a while, sitting meditation for a while, and just go back and forth between the two of them. I know I didn't give instructions on walking meditation today and, and this, on this uh, class, 
But um, I think on IMC's website, there's an articles page. And I think there in the articles page, in, under resources, is an inst- uh, in instructions for walking meditation. But to go back and forth, you know, 20 minutes each, 30 minutes each, for two, three hours in daily life, that begins to build up to uh, build up the momentum of concentration so that the mindfulness becomes stronger. It's possible to go on meditation retreats. And our particular form of Buddhism puts a lot of value on going on what's called the residential retreats, where you go for a few days. And generally, these retreats are conducted in silence. They're kind of a contemplative time. The teachers teach, like I've been teaching, you know, instructions and Dharma talks. And you often meet with the teacher but the chance to kind of do this all day long and be in an environment that really supports uh, a contemplative, mindful awareness throughout the day is really a wonderful thing and really lets this mindfulness build and the concentration build over time. And finally, it's possible to develop the concentration to support mindfulness by, only, by just really focusing on concentration for a while and developing that ability to focus and stay present and one of the ways to do that um, is uh, with the breathing um, and maybe count the breaths, one to ten. And just for a while, if the mind is really seems restless, really scattered, very easily get distracted, and you find that in a session of meditation it feels like you're mostly daydreaming, it might be useful to spend a period of time, maybe even a few months, um, only doing a discipline of staying with the breath the best you can. And without strain, without feeling bad about yourself, always happy to start over again. But to keep coming back to the breath, keep letting go and being with the breath, staying with the breath, and, uh, and using the breath as a foundation for developing stability of attention in the present moment. So these are some of the ways of uh, supporting the practice, continuing the practice, developing the practice further. And... Um, there's certainly much more that I could say, and I hope that this introduction to mindfulness meditation has given you enough, but not too much, that uh, enough to kind of support you and launch you or keep you going uh, in your practice. And uh, I think that I would be very content and happy that you re- learn just enough that inspired you to do the practice and find your own way with it. And... Um, and uh, that you found that meditation was useful in your, in your life itself. So I want to take the last 10 minutes to give you a chance to ask some questions and a few things beforehand. beforehand. I want to just... Oh, I want a few things. Don't write the questions yet. They'll, they'll all get lost if you're the first one to write it, maybe. I'll try to go through the order, but... Um, <laughs> is um, a couple of things. One is... Um, I am thinking that in uh, starting on April 21st, on a Tuesday, to offer an Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation Part 2. And, uh, and that would uh, uh, be looking at some of the things that occur in meditation that make med- mindfulness meditation a challenge. Some of the challenges that people encounter and work with and how to really work with them in an effective way in mindfulness. And so uh, that'll be listed on IMC's website as soon as I've really decided to do it, which is 90%. Um, A little bit depends on the date, but I think it'll be nine days like this one was starting on Tuesday, April 21st, probably at the same time, maybe half an hour earlier. So uh, please come back if you like that. And um, 
And that's uh, and then the other thing is uh, there was a question uh, from yesterday that uh, was kind of touching for me, and I'd like to before I take questions here, I would like to um, uh, uh, respond to that question, and that's the question: How can mindfulness help control pain? So, you know, it's a for me that's a very touching question, and both touching because someone wants to use mindfulness to address what can be very difficult in life and very challenging. Some people live with a lot of chronic pain and it's ongoing and it's a real big thing. And I've known a lot of people who have had chronic, very intense pain who did find mindfulness very helpful for it. So I'll say a few words about it. Um, First, I want to be a little bit careful. Generally, I don't feel comfortable uh, answering the question directly the way that it was asked because I don't want the idea of controlling pain some people ask, can I get rid of the pain? Uh, and sometimes mindfulness is, is advertised as being you know, effective for pain. It'll get, make your pain go away or fix your pain or do something. And I feel very um, hesitant to, um, to uh, imply, as I teach, that mindfulness can help the pain go away or control the pain, something like that. It, it can. So I don't want to rule it out, but to promise that, you know, it's not really realistic to do that. However, what I can say that's almost as good is that what can radically change is not the pain, but how we relate to the pain, which has to do with what we talked about today, that there's the experience and how we relate to it. That some of the difficulty we have with pain is not the pain itself, but rather is the um, the relationship we have to it, the the resistance we have to it, the the pushing away we have to it, the fear we have to it, the contraction we have to it. I remember uh, when I had a lot of uh, knee pain. I know I think I talked talked about this maybe that uh, I noticed if I had self pity, felt sorry for myself. Uh, the pain would get worse. And I think what was happening, there were the muscles around my knee were suddenly contracting when I was resisting it and feeling sorry for myself. And when I relaxed those self-pity thoughts, those little bit of muscles around the knee relaxed as well, and it was less, um, uh, it was less uh, painful. And it, you know, just anything helped. Um, and so the relationship we have to pain um, is where we can loosen up. And there's sometimes I have, uh, you know, pretty bad migraines sometimes. And, um, and I find that uh, uh, if I, from, I'm not saying this is useful for other kinds of pain, but what I'll do is I'll, I'll be quiet, go someplace where I can be quiet, meditate or lie down for that purpose. And, um, and I'll bring my attention right into what I think is the heart of the pain. And just let my attention rest there. And if I put myself right in the middle of the pain, rather than resisting it or being outside of it, looking at it or relating to it or something, and really feel it intimately and closely, um, it stops being pain in the usual way or it stops being a problem in the way that it had been before. And that ability to hold it really right at the center of it, um, it helps free me from some of the related, relating, relating to it that I'm doing. It's just there in a very simple way. Now, how we relate to pain uh, sometimes actually contributes to the pain. 
there are many factors that contribute to the intensity of pain. And that once I read a study where there were 10 different factors that uh, contribute to the intensity of the pain, that it was the combination of the intensities of these 10 things that added up to pain. And, uh, and if, if some of those things were weaker, then the pain wouldn't occur. So sometimes it's our relationship, our resistance, our hate, our fear that involves the pain. Um, so we can have some control. The question was how do we control pain? We can control pain a little bit by controlling how we relate to it and finding some equanimity and peace with it um, rather than always fighting it or feeling pity or projecting into the future how difficult this is going to be. But that might not make the pain go away, but makes it maybe a little bit more bearable. Or we can bring a lot of care and attention, maybe compassion and love to ourselves and to the pain and hold it softly and gently and learn how to go closer and closer, letting it be more and more direct experience. And when the mindfulness is strong, uh, many people have the experience that the pain is intense, but then at some point it stops being an intense pain and becomes something different and um, dissolves in a certain way that's still intense, but it's not really pain anymore. And it's possible with enough concentration and mindfulness to, um, to um, uh, actually have joy at the same time as having pain, to have peace at the same time as having peace. So uh, let's see some of these questions that have come in. I think if I can go up to the top of them. Well, you know, so I noticed that the imagery you use, holding awareness with gentle hands, speaks to me very clearly. Uh, Do you think about why imagery is helpful? And if so, can you please elaborate? The Buddha used imagery uh, to describe and instruct meditation. And part of the usefulness of imagery is that... um, it becomes much more holistic, more of who we are, our visual side, our imagination side, our, our um, also kinesthetic, our physical, you know, holding a hand up as an imagery, it's an image, is something that we have a physical embodied relationship to. We can sense, maybe feel that. So rather than just saying, you know, just hold your pain and awareness, uh, that's nice instruction perhaps, but to hold a pain in the soft softness of your hand, the palm of your hand, that evokes many more associations within us. And so we have a lot of different attentional faculties that can be brought together as we be our mindfulness. And imagery kind of awakens more of who we are to engage in the mindfulness practice. So imagery can be helpful, provided the imagery doesn't become fantasy and takes us away from direct experience. Imagery can easily do that, but the idea is just use some little bit of very simple rudimentary imagery to help us bring us into the practice. And then with time, the imagery falls away, but imagery can be helpful. Um, So... Please study uh, the relationship between meditation practice and the study of Buddhism. 
ideally, uh, in, in, in that question, that uh, the study of Buddhism would be in the service of supporting the meditation practice. So when I was doing a lot of meditation practice, uh, like I'm living in the monastery, um, I actually I studied Buddhism every day, but I would read a Buddhist text, but I would only read maybe at the most a page, sometimes just a couple of paragraphs, because that was enough to be encouraged, inspired, to have new perspectives in which to bring to my practice and explore it. So to dip into a Dharma book, a Buddhist book, to study Buddhism, um, just enough to be given something to work with and explore and new perspective, not to acquire a lot of knowledge at first. Um, So uh, to encourage your practice. So that's the reason to study. Some people need to do a lot of study until they feel like they have a handle and a foundation to really be able to meditate. So different people, different things, but in terms of the question, study in a way that supports your meditation. And if the, what you're studying in Buddhism seems too abstract, abstract and not connected to meditation, maybe find something different to study. I often use distraction for pain control. Meditation makes me more aware of my body. Should I find a balance? I've known people who have very, very intense pain. Uh, I know one person who was paralyzed and was below, you know, but was very in- and he learned to uh, separate out his attention so he didn't feel his lower part of his body. And, you know, I, I, I never had that kind of experience. And so, and so I have a lot of respect for what he was able to do. And so, so maybe sometimes it's wise to avoid pain. Um, and distraction. I, I know there's one meditation technique for pain that uh, is, is, is used for sometimes when there's a very intense pain is to go find in the body some place in the body that is, has pleasure. That, uh, some place. And it could be just a small little square centimeter of something that feels soft, feels comfortable, seems pleasant. And then really focus on that. Develop concentration and focus on that. Begin spread that pleasure through the body. It is a kind of concentration practice more than mindfulness. But that's a little bit distracting one's intention, moving it into something that's more helpful. And it allows the mind to relax. Sometimes the mind is kind of overly tense if there's always kind of pain. And maybe it allows the mind to relax and, and, and soften and get a break and then begin to spread that pleasure and, and throughout the body. And then there's a whole different relationship to the pain. And if that's, I've known people where that pleasure gets spread into where the pain is and the pain gets transformed sometimes. But to do that requires a lot of concentration. And, uh, but sometimes when people are in a lot of intense pain, um, they, their motivation is so strong that maybe the concentration be, can be there. If it's, to, if it's using distraction all the time, um, and like staying in fantasy and thinking fantasy all the time, um, you know, maybe it's a way of avoiding pain, but it's not really cultivating mindfulness and the capacity to really meet life in a mindful, clear way. So it depends on what you want to do. And if what you want to do is cultivate mindfulness, you want to be a little bit careful you're not uh, making too much of a habit of being distracted in, in fantasy or thoughts. So let me... I used to practice meditation a lot when younger. Now I notice my asthma makes me kind of tense about my breathing. How do I work with that instead of, feeling, of fleeing it? 
So I'll answer the question as you asked it, and also I'll offer another perspective on that. How do I work with that uh, that makes you tense? So the simplest way in mindfulness is you make your tension the object of meditation. You go find out where in the body, where in the mind that tension lives, and then you hold, you you let that just be with the simplicity of that experience. Just hold attention, be with attention. There are times when I don't have asthma, but there are times where I've been busy and involved in a lot. I sit down to meditate, and I notice that my chest is being held. It's tight. There's some pressure there. There's contraction there. It's a little bit. And so when I sit and meditate, then. I will bring my attention to that feeling of contraction in my chest. I don't, I'm not trying to relax it. I'm not judging it. I don't feel like I'm a bad person because of it. Or, um, you, know, I, you know, I shouldn't ever admit that to an audience of meditation students because I should be better than that. Um, I just hold it in my awareness and breathe with it. It's, sometimes I've imagined that's a little bit like the rhythm of breathing in the chest. is like a massage for that place of contraction. And then after a while, it begins to loosen and relax. So it's possible the tension that you're feeling with the asthma will relax if you just hold it in your hand gently. The other thing to do, though, is um, maybe find a different place in your body to be aware of the breathing. Uh, there are times when I've had con- was controlling my breath or had a contracted breath where I brought my attention to my back rib cage and felt the more subtle movement of the back rib cage as I breathed. And that took me away from the place where the breath was problematic. And, uh, and so then it kind of eased up, and then the breath was more, came into more natural and easy way. Maybe feeling the breath in the belly rather than in the area of the lungs, feeling the movements of the belly uh, can make it easier for the asthma. And maybe sometimes if you keep a soft belly, um, uh, it might be that you can breathe more deeply in a relaxed way, and maybe that's helpful. And then the other thing, which is not, I wanted to say that's not part of the question, is that there are for some people, like for asthma and sometimes certain traumas they've had when they were younger. Um, I've known people who had near drowning experiences, for example, or cho- almost choked on something, that the breath has become kind of a problem to connect to it and some of the fear that uh, is still living in there and that gets triggered when we just bring our attention to it. So it's completely fine to have other home basis for mindfulness meditation. It doesn't have to be the breathing. And, um, and the one, cl- one common one that's offered in our Buddhist tradition is to use sounds. Sounds are always in the present moment. And to open, this, open your awareness to sounds and just hear the sounds that are going on around you. We tend not to uh, fix the sounds, interfere with the sounds, and just allow the sounds to come and appear, rise and pass receptively in awareness. And some people find that very relaxing. Some people feel like their mind almost like expands outward to become as large as the distance the sound is coming from. It makes a very spacious kind of situ- uh, situation. And then if other things become predominant, like sensations in the body, emotions, thoughts, whatever, then um, uh, one would let go of the sounds and come back to those things and be mindful of those. So those are some of the things that you can do and maybe that would be helpful. Um, so here was a question that uh, there are more people about pain. How can meditation alleviate pain? Pain from arthritis, for example. And um, so I, hopefully the question I answered before addressed that question. 
with arthritis, um, I have I've had arthritis in my knees, and um, certainly I've 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 I found out that if I walked a lot and built up strength, that actually alleviated the pain for me. But I also learned that uh, when I did walking meditation a lot, that uh, I brought very very careful attention, this refined mindfulness to my walking. I could find a way to walk uh, so the knees. Uh, weren't being ir- irritated by the arthritis, and it but it required really careful attention and very subtle adjustments and just just the right way. Sometimes that's helpful, but um, can you comment about the difference between emotions and thoughts? Um, yeah, the. Uh, it's hard to know what emotions are really exactly as a unified thing, but then there's a huge overlap between emotions and thinking. Um, sometimes they're not really so separate from each other, and sometimes we can see them as being separate. Sometimes we can see how thoughts trigger an emotion. Sometimes we can see how an emotion uh, influences or even triggers uh, certain thoughts. And it's interesting to watch the play back and forth between thinking and emotions, whatever an emotion is. And... Um, but generally, emotions are, um, or say it this way, uh, in this most simple way that thoughts occur, they are, um, uh, you know, without a lot of associations and involvement, a thought is kind of almost like effortless, it's soft, it's empty, it's transparent, it has no weight, it's like a cloud. Thoughts and and they're and they're not necessarily embodied. Uh, emotions always have some embodied component to it. There's sensations. Something's activated in our body, and so with that is what we call feeling. Something that's more pleasant and more unpleasant, or a feeling tone, or something like that. But exactly, you know, as I said, I I don't know if we can make a clear separation of these two worlds, but maybe. All we're asking to do is just enough separation to see the difference, enough to be mindful of it. Maybe one last thing I'll say is maybe one difference is that uh, emotions are always something happening in the present moment. They can be triggered by thoughts of the past and the future, but the emotions are always present phenomena. Thoughts are also always present phenomena, but um, the thoughts can be about the past and the future. And then we get lost in that past and the future. We're involved and concerned about the past and the future if we're too much involved in our thoughts. When I turned away from breath, I realized I was feeling happiness, almost euphoria, bubbles arising. Tried to back away, difficult. Advice advice for not being... It's a for enjoyable emotion, not clinging. Well, as meditation deepens and some concentration happens and more letting go happens, then um, there is experiences of happiness that can arise, joy, well-being. Sometimes it can be a very subtle feeling of contentment and ease and happiness. Sometimes it can be quite strong and the euphoria, bubbles arising. Sometimes it's waves cascading of joy passing through a person. And um, and uh, sometimes they just has kind of a life of its own. So backing away from that euphoria can be um, can be uh, 
you know, it needs to take its time. If it's too much, you can just stop meditation and, um, and, um, and, you know, go for a walk or, you know, go have some tea or something. But um, advice for not being for enjoyable emotion, not clinging. Well, if it's arising out of meditation, this feeling of happiness that's going on, it's, it, there's an innocent and appropriate way to be for it. This is part of a positive feedback loop. This is that can occur, occur in meditation. It's good. And you want to just allow it and appreciate it. The Buddha talked about as joy and happiness bubble up in meditation, to take that happiness and spread it out through your body. So you're allowed to enjoy it. No problem. Um, the problem is when you cling to it or you expect it or you're pushing to it or you're trying to get the absolute last drop of that joy out of the experience. The idea is to be very open-handed with it. Um, to see it as a gift. Receive the gift. Open to the gift. Let it support you to be more in the present moment. Sometimes it's a biofeedback uh, mechanism by the happiness and joy, the well-being, is a sign that meditation is going well and maybe continue with what you're doing. Or if, it, if the, going back to the breathing seems a little bit, you know, like not quite to the point or diminishes the happiness, then maybe just enter into the happiness. If that's the compelling thing happening, then it's completely fine to do a mindfulness of happiness. Just like when I had the migraines, I put myself right in the middle of the pain. Uh, when you feel happiness, it's, that's the compelling and strong thing. Put yourself right in the middle of the happiness and feel it. Um, and, like I kept saying, there's the experience and our relationship to it. And become skilled at noticing that your relationship is extra, that you don't have to cling and grasp and want and build up a self and want to tell all your friends. Just stay with the simplicity of the happiness. So we're going over time. So I'll maybe... Um, oh, maybe uh, did I do them all? Oh, someone said that uh, she posted the link to walking meditation instruction on IMC's Facebook page. Thank you, Wendy, very much for doing that. How much do you meditate daily now these days? I meditate uh, most days anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes. And... Um, and I feel very lucky that I have a job medit- teaching meditation. So it's like some days I'll meditate a lot because I'm teaching like a retreat or something. And so, I mean, I feel pretty fortunate. Isn't that pretty cool to have a job that lets you meditate? Um, so, So I think that's enough. I feel like I'm kind of talked out and my my mind isn't as agile after all this. So so I want to thank you all very much for being part of this and um, and I would certainly be delighted to have you come back and and, uh, if you ever come to Redwood City and we're no longer shelter in place, I'd be very happy to see you here and Come and say hello, and and perhaps um, in a couple of weeks, on April twenty first, that uh, we'll 
meet each other again this way. So thank you so much and thank you for your comments and the, and uh, your good mornings and thank yous. It's all been very meaningful for me and and I feel very nourished and delighted to, to have this connection with you all. Thank you.